Well, we're continuing today in our series on the book of Acts. Last time we saw Peter's second sermon, second Christian sermon, right, where he explained the healing of the lame man at the gate, the temple gate. It was, he said, the name of Jesus, the crucified and now glorified servant, which has given the man back his health. And that what God had done in raising Jesus is the fulfillment. The fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham and of all the words of the prophets. And so Peter called upon the assembled Jews there to repent. To repent that their sins might be blotted out. That they might experience times of refreshment from the presence of the Lord. The Lord whom he said heaven must receive. Until he comes to restore all things about which the prophet spoke. So that was a quick summary of the sermon last week. Now, it turns out that this sermon that Peter preached um, caused quite a disturbance. It had plenty of provocation and accusation and warning in it. And so this morning, in Acts chapter 4, we get... And this is a pivotal text this way. We get the first outbreak of persecution against the early primitive church. And what we have here is relatively mild, but things will quickly escalate. And Jesus had prepared them and us for this, saying if they persecuted him, they will persecute his followers. So it turns out persecution is not a feature in Christian existence. It's not a bug, it's a feature. It's not things behaving abnormally, it's the way things are normally to be. If they did it to me, they'll do it to you. If the world hated me, you could also expect to be hated. No servant, he says, no servant is above his master. Very, very sobering words. But Jesus went even further than this. He said that to be reviled, to be slandered, and to be persecuted was to be blessed. Like it was the very essence of blessedness. He didn't say, look, you're going to be persecuted and slandered. Try and make the most of it. See if you could turn it into a blessing. No, he says, this is blessedness. Right? He says this at the core of his ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven, he says, belongs to such as those. It belongs to the reviled and the persecuted. And thus the church is amassing, he says. Again, this is counterintuitive to us. It is amassing heavenly reward in the form of earthly defeat. Under the guise of what appears to be complete tragedy. This, he said, was the fate of all the prophets before you. You can expect it in general, not everywhere, of course, but in general to be the plight of the church. So it was a lesson. It's a lesson we resist, but it's a lesson the apostles learned, and they they deeply imbibed it. It just oozes out of them. Paul puts the inevitability of persecution this way. In 2 Timothy, he says this. 
Indeed, all, right, not just the apostles, not just a couple generations in the early church. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? Godliness induces persecution. In Philippians, he says this. To you, it has been granted. Right? This is the doctrines of grace. To you, it has been granted freely by grace, not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. Right? With the gift of faith comes the gift or the blessedness of suffering. They are coordinate realities in this age. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, from his Nazi prison cell, 1937, he wrote that Luther reckoned suffering to be among the marks of the true church. Suffering is among the marks of the true church. The community, the church is the community of those who suffer and often are martyred for the gospel's sake. It's impossible to understand the joy in the book of Acts without grasping this. The suffering then begins right here. It begins in Acts chapter 4. And it has not ended to this day. In fact, the 20th century is arguably the worst century of Christian persecution. I'm sure some of you have seen the Voice of the Martyrs map in the hallway. You want to see where the gospel is is, uh, opposed or hostile, or restricted, you know, it's a good half the world. And then the part of the world where they don't have it opposed or restricted is Canada, the United States, Western Europe, where we know there's enormous hostility to the gospel in other forms. The suffering already begins in Acts chapter 4, and it will not end until the end of the age. Suffering, Paul says in Romans 8, is a distinguishing, constitutive Feature of the church's life in this age. Every funeral is a reminder of this. Glory is a property of the church in the age to come. This is why the apostle can say, if we suffer with him, we shall be, future tense, glorified with him. To the extent that we have glory in this age, it's glory in the form of the cross. And this calling then, this sacred vocation to suffer, the apostolic church and faithful martyr witnesses down through the centuries and across the globe today, your brothers and sisters, they embrace this calling with joy. It's a cause of great celebration. We'll see this throughout the book of Acts. Why would they do that? Well, because Jesus had told them. That if this happens, you're blessed. The kingdom is yours. You're storing up this reward. right? Because Paul had taught that the, the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be. Later in Acts, Paul will say, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And at the end of the New Testament, In the latter part of the first century, you have the Apostle John, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, writing the book of Revelation. And remember how he addresses himself to those churches in Asia Minor? He says, I, John, your brother, your brother in the kingdom 
and the tribulation which are in Jesus. Notice that. In this age, two things are fused together. The kingdom and tribulation. Suffering and glory. So, with that, we'll look at the text under two headings. The arrest. The arrest of Peter and John and their defense. You you should have an outline in the bulletin. So, first, the arrest. They're speaking to the people, the text says, as they were speaking. So, notice, this happens like right in the middle of their publicly discoursing with the people. They're interrupted. They're descended upon by the priests, the captain of the guard, notice that, and the Sadducees. So it's clear that what's going on here is the apostles have invaded this domain, the temple, that they're not the masters of, and in which they're seen as unwelcome agitators. The captain of the temple guard is basically the chief of police. Right? For the temple state, for the temple precincts, and somewhat beyond. He's the law and order guy with the power to arrest. Right? There's a fusion here of temple authority and coercive power, police power. He was second in command, the captain of the temple guard, second in command to the high priest. It was, was essentially a priestly state, or at least a priestly province. So the Sadducees are the dominant ruling class here. From them, most of the priests come at this time, and definitely the high priest is the Sadducee. They tend to be for cooperation with Rome. Right? They tended to want to collaborate and find ways to, to deal with the Roman overlord situation. Also, theologically, they deny the existence of things like angels, and they deny that there's a resurrection. And notice the text says they were greatly annoyed. They were disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. Right? They're unauthorized usurpers in the, in the temple precincts. So they're teaching the people. That's a task for the priests. That's our, that's our job. Right? And they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And that's a doctrine the Sadducees deny. So it's not just that they're intruding. Notice the language, the way this is put. It's important to catch this. They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's not the same thing as proclaiming that Jesus was raised from the dead. Though it includes that. This means both that Jesus is raised and as the language indicates that in Jesus the dead shall be raised on the last day. And that the two things can't be separated. They are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It is intrinsic to the gospel, the the bodily resurrection of all the dead at the end of the age. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of that. So they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This is the hope of Israel. And the healing of the lame man teaches both things. Both things. It teaches that Jesus has been raised by God. That's why this man is well. And it is a foretaste of the restoration of all things in the general resurrection of the dead when the Lord appears from heaven. Both aspects of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection and the final resurrection, would be denied by the Sadducees. They deny them both. So you have this gathering. It's annoying to them. 
on a social political level for a lot of reasons, but one is it could provoke a Roman intervention. Right? There are Roman authorities in the area of Judea living just outside the city that watch over these things. And if things get a little too turbulent in the city, the Romans descend and restore order. So this is a provocation with the possibility of a Roman intervention. But it's also annoying on the level of religious authorization. The apostles have none. They have no credentials. So they're like an intrusion into the Jerusalem elite's domain. And the priestly class and the Sadducees at this time, they are the elite. And it's also, of course, annoying on a doctrinal level because the temple custodians do not believe in the resurrection. And so they arrest Peter and John. Isn't that remarkable that the high priestly line has police powers? They have a police force and they go arrest. These are the same people with the same authority who arrested Jesus in the garden weeks before. Right? The Romans don't arrest these, these men. The Jewish priestly class with their temple police arrest these men. But it turns out you can't arrest the gospel. You cannot arrest the gospel. Paul has this marvelous statement later, which he says from prison. I was talking to someone recently. I said, I think we forget that enormous portions of the Bible are written from prison. Paul says in prison, I am bound in chains like a criminal, but the word of God can't be chained. Right? The, word of God, the word of God does not depend on your civil liberties. It often does better when you don't have any. The word of God can't be chained. And the text says here, even before they were arrested, that many of those who heard believed about 5,000 men. So the Jewish root, the Jewish foundation of the church is growing. The word is running. Luther has this marvelous statement about, I didn't do anything to start the Reformation. I just preached the word and, you know, the rest of the time I hung out with the saints. The word went off and did all the work. Notice there's a difference in receptivity here, as there often is, between the people, the common people who seem open to the good news of Jesus and their leaders who are hostile, turf-protecting people. So all the machinations of the kingdom of darkness, here or anywhere, cannot, Calvin says, notice this, he's commenting on this text, he says, they cannot prevent a few men, unarmed, with no warlike resources, from revealing more power by their words alone that is possessed by the whole world raging against them. Just the gospel in your mouth is more powerful than all the raging of the world against them. Just a few men, Calvin says, notice he says unarmed men with no worldly or warlike resources. They've got none of the protections that we think are indispensable. But they have the sword of the Lord. They have the word of God. And that is more power than the whole world raging against them. So that's the arrest. And in beginning in verse 5, we get Peter's defense. They're arrested. Right? And it says, 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered in Jerusalem. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice a sneakily important word here. It's the word there. On the next day, their rulers. Now remember, these are Jews, these early Christians. Not our rulers, but the rulers of the Jewish people. By the time Luke writes, there's a cleavage between the apostolic community and the Jewish community and their leaders. It's their leaders. And so you have this gathering of leaders. This is almost certainly what later came to be called the Sanhedrin, which is a court of 70 or 71 presided over by the high priest. And the court would consist of some elders, basically clan leaders in Israel, some scribes who would be teachers of the law. Many of these scribes would be Pharisees. But the overall composition of the court was Sadducee. It mentions Annas in the text, right? He was deposed by the Romans as a high priest, but it looks like he's still functioning de facto as a high priest. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. He's the official high priest. Both of these men figured in the trial of Jesus just a few weeks earlier. We don't know anything about John or Alexander, but they appear to be, the text says, part of the high priestly family, which again is Sadducees. So they're arraigned. It's a serious situation, and it's called out a serious array of religious authorities and police power. And they set the two of them, the two apostles in the midst, probably in some sort of semicircle, right, for some legal inquiry. It's an intimidating situation. It's, an, it's a situation, by the way. Remember, Caiaphas is the presiding high priest over Jesus' trial. It's the same guy. So they're going to remember what happened to Jesus, and they, of course, know what his fate was. So the air would be palpable for Peter and John that we might suffer the same fate. And so the court asks, by what power or by what name do you do this? They want to see your papers. What's your authorization? It's the same question, by the way, these temple authorities asked Jesus in Luke chapter 20. And you might remember his answer. His answer was, I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask you a question. Jesus being the master of the counter question, right? He says, um, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And of course, we can't unpack that whole text here, but John is another marginal figure with no authorization on the edges of Israel who ends up executed. So again, the point is the temple is our domain. We've not granted you authority to teach or minister here. And then the text tells us Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Like a fresh infilling for the situation Peter talks, he speaks. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. We read about it in the gospel lesson. He said this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be a great opportunity. Settle it, therefore, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Not to meddle. There's no other strategy Jesus gives a church coming into the teeth of persecution than this. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. That's the sum of his strategy. 
Settle it beforehand, not to meditate on how to answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand. So with the persecution, which is itself a blessedness, which is itself a form of the possession of the kingdom of God, with the persecution will come the spirit of the risen Christ, spirit-filled words with which to respond to your interrogators. Again, the whole strategy of the church in the teeth of persecution is the gift of the Spirit from the risen Christ. So Peter speaks then in fulfillment of this promise and he boldly says, rulers of the people and elders. And then with a a little bit of irony, he says, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed that we've done to a crippled man, it's as if to say, I'm not sure how this is an issue. A man has been restored But it's apparently an issue, so I'll answer your question. But his whole tone with them is both respectful but firm. Calvin has a marvelous comment here. He says, he neither flatters them nor engages in undue indignation. That's our problem. Enormous amounts of undue indignation. At even the slightest whiff of a government threat, we unleash undue indignation. But Calvin says, here's a man who's been arrested, whose life's on the line. He speaks to them neither with flattery nor with undue indignation. He rebukes them, Calvin says, without the passion of abuse. That is the fruit of being filled with the Spirit. It removes the passion of abuse from us. It removes removes undue indignation from us. He's filled with the glory spirit of God. And he says, if you want to know by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all the people. So not just to the rulers, now to all the people. Right? He's already said, you've acted in ignorance. Well, the time for ignorance is over. Now I'm going to let it be known. There'll be no more ignorance. Let it be known to all. That by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here well. This is the third time, we haven't commented on it till now. This is the third time, only the fourth chapter of the book. It's the third time that Jesus has been referred to by the apostles as Jesus of Nazareth. Which is in Galilee, right? This is a reminder that he's from nowhere special. Right? That he's not one of your elite. Right? He would have had a Galilean dialect. That's where he was raised. Jurisdictionally, Jesus is not even a Judean. He's a Galilean. Right? Judea was a Roman province. Right? A province of the Roman Empire. Galilee is not. Galilee is under Herod. Galilee is a client state. It's a big mistake to read the Gospels and assume the two things are the same. They're not. Part of the reason that Pilate realizes Jesus is not a zealot is because he's not a Judean. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, by maternal descent, right, by his religious practice, you could call him a Judean that way. But by jurisdiction, he's a Galilean. He's from up there. Galilee of the Gentiles, where there's a lot of Gentile commerce. Right? He's from up in that region, and that region is not considered you know, an elite region by the Judeans. Remember, remember what Nathaniel says? 
when he's called to be a disciple, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So when you, when you say to the elites in Jerusalem, right, this Jesus who did this is Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth, of Nazareth, you're twisting the knife in a little bit. He's not in your club. He's, he also, by the way, was unauthorized. He also was put on trial. And you thought you had fixed that problem, that Jesus problem. But he's back now in the presence of his apostles. Who are also, by the way, from outside the centers of power and often just, you know, Galilean fishermen or worse, tax collectors. I mean, think about it. Jesus has a, a, a radical and real continuity with the history of Israel, obviously. He's Israel's Messiah. But he could have picked 12 members of the Sanhedrin and said, made them the 12 apostles, the foundations of the new and renewed and eschatological Israel. But he doesn't do that. He picks some guys from up in Galilee, a bunch of fishermen. And he makes them the 12 foundation stones of the renewed Israel of God. So yeah, there's a continuity between Jesus and Israel, but it's a subversive continuity. It's a continuity from the margins. You crucified him, Peter says. This is the third time he's made this deeply personal accusation. You crucified him, God raised him. Again, the contrast is the treatment he received from this court and the vindication he received from the court of heaven. God has overturned your unjust verdict on him. Now remember, every mention of the resurrection is galling to this Sadducee-dominated court. Imagine appearing before the court and respectfully and firmly telling them two things. You murdered the Son of God. And by the way, yes, we affirm this doctrine that you think is absurd, this doctrine of the bodily resurrection. But in Jesus, who is raised, the resurrection of the dead is proclaimed, and this Man, this healed and restored lame man is a sign of that coming resurrection. And Peter, he's just warming up. In verse 11, the force of his defense becomes ferocious. He quotes Psalm 118, a messianic text. We were walking in this morning and Mary said to me, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And I said to her, I'm going to cite that psalm today. That comes from Psalm 118. And Peter cites it here. And he cites it indicting them in a pointed fashion. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Now that's pretty offensive, but you have to go back and look at the original context. If you read Psalm 118, it appears that Israel is the stone... And the builders that reject the stone are the imperial pagan powers around Israel. But Peter says, no, Jesus is the stone, and you, Israel, are the corrupt builders. You are now playing the role of the pagan imperial powers in the psalm. It's hard to do more offensive exegesis than this. You rejected him. By the way, it is this psalm. We heard it read. In which we say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in him. The day of rejection. The rejection of the stone whom God will raise. That's the day of gladness. You rejected him, crucifying him. But now in the resurrection, exalted to the right hand of God, he has become the cornerstone. 
So this is the truth, right? But it's deeply offensive to the Sadducee-dominated court. Any Jew would find it offensive, perhaps. But the Sadducees would find it gruesomely offensive. And where did Peter learn to interpret Psalm 118 this way? Well, he learned it from our Lord himself, who used this text, Psalm 118, at at the end of one of his most blistering of parables. And there's a lot of them that would compete for that title. But the parable of the wicked tenants, also a parable directed by Jesus against the temple authorities. A pretty transparent parable, by the way. Nobody was unclear about how to interpret it. Here's the end of the parable in the Gospels. When the tenants saw him, that is the son of the owner of the vineyard, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? And then Jesus cites Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter is continuing to apply this text to the same Jewish leadership that Jesus applied it to in the very recent past. Right? Christ, the rejected stone, is now the cornerstone. The stone by which the whole building is measured. The cornerstone of what, you might ask? The cornerstone of the new eschatological temple. The new spirit-created temple constructed by the spirit, promised by the prophets. Now notice, notice the coherence, notice the brilliance of this spirit-wrought application of scripture by the apostle. The context is full of temple authorities trying to protect temple privileges, trying to determine temple authorization, trying to police the temple. And Peter says, in doing so, in your zeal to do just that, you have crucified the cornerstone of the true temple that God is building. The temple that you are so jealous to protect, by the way, is going to be taken from you. The way the vineyard was taken from those in the parable Jesus told. This is why Jesus said, some of you, they will kill. So Peter concludes in verse 12. There's salvation in no one else. Which is also offensive, right? Because they're Jews. They're in the covenant. They go to the temple. They keep the feast. What are, they, what are you talking about? They need salvation from sin and death, from the wrath and curse of God. And the healing of the lame man is a sign of this. There is salvation in no one else. You know what else Peter's saying here then? This movement that you're opposing, temple authorities, this is not a sect of Judaism. Right? This is the renewal and the fulfillment and the continuation of the Israel of God. And outside of this movement and this Jesus, there is salvation nowhere else. It's really scandalous. No one else is the promised Messiah. No one else is the fulfillment of the covenant and the words of the prophets. No one else has been raised from the dead. No one else is exalted to the right hand of God. You have nowhere to turn. So you face this inescapable and momentous decision which every human being faces. 
And this is the great and the continuing, especially in our day, the great and continuing offense of the exclusivity of Jesus as the only Savior. But the issue, of course, is not whether modern people or Western people find something to be offensive, right? The issue is, is it true? And Jesus himself says it is. He says it repeatedly. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the one who claims exclusive prerogatives and divine prerogatives repeatedly. It's a big part of what got him killed. But there's even a deeper logic here to the fact that there's no other name. It's not possible for there to be any other name given who Jesus Christ is. Right? It's precisely because he is the full and the final image of the Father. Right, The refulgence of the Father's glory. Undiminished reflection of the Father's fullness. God of God, light of light, true God of true God in human flesh. Precisely because he is that. That he is the only way to the Father. If he's God in human flesh, if he's the exhaustive revelation of the Father, whose atoning sacrifice avails for the sins of the world, then he can't possibly be one way among many ways to the Father. There can't possibly be two or three different tracks. Exclusivity here is just sanity. It's like holding to the fact that. Four is the only answer to what two plus two is. You're not open-minded, right, if you have a diversity of answers. It's not sane. It's a testimony to the glory and sufficiency of Christ, right, to his splendor as the son of the father to say he's the only way. There's salvation in no one else. It's basically equivalent to saying there's salvation in no one else but God. So... Peter declares this not because he's like a narrow-minded bigot, but because God has revealed it to be so. Right? That there is no other name under heaven given among men. Notice, that includes Jews and Gentiles, by which we must be saved. I want to point out a couple things as I close. Under heaven here, no other name under heaven, refers to the universal authority of the name of Jesus. And in the context, it's important because he's fighting up against this limited, fading, local authority of the Sanhedrin. Even the Sanhedrin doesn't think they have authority over under heaven. So this looks like they're, they're, they're prosecuting a little sect, a little band of people grown to a few thousands now in Jerusalem. But Peter's saying, no, 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 no. We're proclaiming the universal name. This is an unlimited authority, and he's building a universal temple. He offers a universal salvation. What was Adam supposed to do, right? He was supposed to take dominion, multiply, fill the earth with the glory and image of God. The whole earth was, from the beginning, destined to be a cosmic temple to God's glory. Jesus is building that temple. Right? This, then, Peter says, is the name the divine living action of the risen Jesus, the name by which we must. Notice the language of necessity. By divine design, we must be saved by this name and by this name alone. This is your Jesus. The stone who was rejected, 
And he's now raised up as this chief cornerstone in this international, global, cosmic temple that spans heaven and earth and every tribe and tongue and nation and language. It's the only name given under heaven because it's a name full of radiance and splendor to which nothing can be added. Right? It's the name given under heaven that salvation might come to Israel first and then to us Gentiles and even to the ends of the earth. So proclaim him. Call upon him. Worship him. For in him and by his wounds you have been healed of your spiritual lameness. And in him you have already been raised up in the spirit. And in him your bodily resurrection at the end of the age is assured. And with him as the cornerstone you are being built into this house. This cosmic temple of God, the living God in the spirit. Amen. Amen.